the first time since Rachel Alexandra in 2009, a filly will enter the starting gate for the Preakness. We'll talk with the trainer of Swiss skydiver Ken McPeak. Plus, what will the recent ruling in Kentucky on historical horse racing machines mean for the future of the racing business? We'll have all that and more on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They roll sack. And they're off. As they move to the top of the stretch. It's a hit-bombing finish! This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. Those reviews really help others find us. We would just love it if you would contact the astrophysicists at America's Best Racing to let them know that In The Gate belongs in their nominees for Best Podcast in this year's Fan Choice Awards. Try the Twitter handle at ABR Live or the America's Best Racing Facebook page and let them know that In The Gate belongs. Swiss Skydiver will become the 55th filly in history to go to the post against Colts in the Preakness this Saturday. She'll try to become the sixth filly to win the race, and the first since the great Rachel Alexandra in 2009. Swiss skydiver in cruise control coming to the furlong pole. Speech on the outside moves into second, and then it's Murnith. They're coming to the 16th, and Swiss skydiver has a three-length lead. Speech very honest, trying her best, but Swiss skydiver brings her skills to the West Coast, and she rocked in the Santa Anita Oaks. That win for fun against just three overmatched opponents was Swiss Skydiver's fourth graded stakes win this year and her first grade one. It came after a second-place finish against Colts in the Bluegrass at Keeneland. The winner of that race, Art Collector, who would have been a threat to win the Kentucky Derby, was scratched just before the race with a minor foot problem. Art Collector, like Swiss Skydiver, is entered for the Preakness. Swiss Skydiver comes off a second-place finish in the Kentucky Oaks to She Dares the Devil a month ago, a result that raised her career earnings to over $1.1 million. Not bad for a filly the trainer Ken McPeak plucked out of the Keeneland September yearling sale two years ago for just $35,000. And trainer Ken McPeak is nice enough to share a few minutes with us here on In The Gate. The fact that the Preakness is run later in the year than earlier... How much of a decision did that make in trying a Triple Crown race against Colts? Yeah, it was big. You know, the timing, we were pointing towards the Oaks, and we ended up running at Oaklawn in the fantasy because it was rescheduled for what would originally have been Oaks Day. And uh, to have been able to come back in a couple of weeks after that would have been pretty difficult. And I don't know that I would have done it then. But the way the schedules unfolded and... You know, it's been kind of a moving target all year. I think the timing's pretty good. Also, what about her physical development from the spring to now the fall? How much of a difference did that make, or would she have been ready physically to run in a race like this back in the spring? I think she would have been, but, you know, th- this year has been so odd and in, in that everything has kind of been turned on its head. We have got a filly that's obviously very talented, and the timing of everything. I, I mean, I had three choices going into this race, and actually none of them were ideal in that 
you got a three-year-old filly. I would rather run a three-year-old filly against three-year-old fillies and obviously a grade one. She's come out of a series of those. But we only had three-year-old Colts grade one. We had fillies and mares three and up grade one. And we had fillies three-year-olds turf race grade one. And those were the only options on the calendar. And I just decided that I'd rather run against straight three-year-olds than older fillies and mares. And, and we've got plenty of time to run against older fillies and mares later in her career. So Peter Callahan and I are both swing high and hard kind of guys. And he said, you know, yeah, everybody would dream of winning the Preakness. And not that the Spinster's a bad race and not that the QE2 is a bad race, but the Preakness is once in a lifetime and on the sheets she fits. I remember back, and the obvious comparison is Rachel Alexandra when she won the Kentucky Oaks by 20 and then ran in the Preakness. And here you have a filly who ran second, a distant second, but second to a good horse and art collector whom you'll see again on Saturday, but then didn't win the Kentucky Oaks, ran well, but didn't win by 20 like Rachel Alexandra did. So where's the thought process in saying, okay, she's ready to challenge Colts in a triple crown race off of those two efforts? Well, a race at the Bluegrass was a respectable race, but I also think that the way the pace of that race unfolded, we may have gone a little fast early. And I think we found that she likes the added distance after winning, winning the Alabama and the Oaks. I think if we'd stayed inside, we win the race. I mean, in hindsight, we, well, going into the race, we knew Gamine was a filly that, that drifted out when she straightened up in the stretch. And I'm still perplexed on why my rider left the rail, but I think that cost her the win. And who knows, woulda, coulda, shoulda. But on paper, if you looked at this race and we pulled up the PPs and looked at it closely, she started better on paper. And of course, you know, they've still got to line them up and pull the trigger and see who's best to run around there, but she fits. And this is why we race horses and we are excited about it. And I think it's good for the game and we're going into it as optimistic and going to have a good time and see if she pulls off something historic. Trainer Ken McPeak joining us here on In the Gate. He'll send out Swiss Skydiver in the Preakness on Saturday. Now, you and I are both old enough to remember when, say, the Santa Anita Derby would be run two weeks before the Kentucky Derby and no one even batted an eyelash. And now horses run four, five, maybe six, seven weeks apart. The Breeders' Cup obviously has got to be the main goal the first weekend of November. You're going to now have three hard races, the Bluegrass, the Kentucky Oaks, and now the Preakness before the Breeders' Cup. Did you give any thought to resting her and making sure you were ready for the first weekend of November? Well, look, this is a filly that is extremely good in the feed tub. Every day we, we drop her grain and she eats it in 10 minutes. It's pretty amazing, really. I do think to some extent horses are overtrained and underraced. And I believe in you know, keeping maintaining a good pattern. And she's maintained her pattern all year. And we know I would rather race than train. I mean, there's really not much glory in training. It's uh, the repetition, and it puts on, in some some cases, more wear and tear on a horse than actually running them. And if you look at the PPs on a horse like a Fern or Alidar, they ran these horses every eight, ten days. Two weeks was a rest. I mean, I find it in some cases ridiculous that, that we wait six, eight weeks in between races sometimes. And if you've got a horse doing well, you shouldn't be scared to run it. 
How has your whole training regimen with her and your other horses been altered by the coronavirus even now? Like, what ripple effects are there in how these horses are coming into these races? Well, the training and the and the racing, the racing schedule has been moved repeatedly. So we are calling more audibles at the line of scrimmage to figure out where we're going to run. But the training's kept pretty basic and simple. And every day, our routine is, has remained the same for my staff, with the exception that we take our temperatures and we wear masks. And we're aware that if someone gets sick, we need to social distance. And we spend a lot of time making sure everybody's doing the right thing. The traveling is more difficult because you've got to pay attention to these things. But the industry's done a really, really good job. Churchill Downs done an excellent job. Uh, the Strong Group tracks and even Naira, they've all done a good job. From my perspective, all the tracks that I've been to that we participated in have done everything that they can to keep the spread of the virus down. And how the racing schedule unfolds, we decide according to how our horse is doing and we deal with it. And to me, it's not a big deal. Up front, Swiss Skydiver is still fresh and still in front. She leads three parts of a length. Lucrezia has had a good run of it, and she's re- creeping closer second. Swiss Skydiver has been masterfully handled by Paco Lopez. Turns for home with the advantage. Lucrezia to the attack is second. Lake Avenue is now third. But as they go to the first finish line, they left Paco alone. And Swiss Skydiver is a Gulfstream Park Oaks winner. What are the most important things that have to go right for Swiss Skydiver to win the Preakness? Well, the pace of this race is going to be interesting, authentic on the outside and art collector inside of us. And how that unfolds is going to be uh, the first half mile will be very interesting to see how it unfolds. We had a um, two race commitment with Tyler Daflione going into this race that unfortunately they didn't honor. And it left me in a position where I had to change riders. Um, I didn't know that until Saturday. We thought we were. We, our plans were set, but they weren't. But um, I'm bringing in Robbie Alvarado, who's won this race, and he's been a big race rider and won plenty of major races. So he's hungry for that level again. But how that pace unfolds is I'm not even going to try to guess. And we certainly wish you the best of luck on Saturday. Trainer Ken McPeak, thank you so much for a few minutes, sir. Thank you. By the way, in case you were wondering... 54 fillies have started the Preakness with five winners and five runners-up. 40 fillies have started the Derby with three winners and 23 in the Belmont with three winners, including the first-ever Triple Crown race winner, Ruthless, in 1867. Don't leave yet. The future of the funding for thoroughbred racing has been thrown into some chaos by a recent court ruling. What does the future for so-called historical racing mean for the sport? We'll get into that when we come back. Welcome back to In the Gate. Paramutual betting is a term you've likely heard quite a bit, but you might not know exactly how to define it. It's a French term, meaning where money from all bets of a particular type, like win, place, show, daily double, pick three, pick four, etc., are put into one big pool, taxes and the house's cut are taken off the top, and the odds for each entrant in the race are determined by sharing the pool amongst all the winning bets. So you're wagering against all the other people betting on a race. 
as opposed to casino gaming where you're betting against the house. Because they're different types of gambling, they're governed by different rules. There are states that allow paramutual wagering, but do not allow casino-style gaming. And one of those states is Kentucky, a rather important one to the thoroughbred business. One idea to try to get around that discrepancy is called historical horse racing. You play the game on a machine that looks and feels like a slot machine, but the game is based on thousands of horse races that have actually taken place in the past at different tracks. The machine randomly selects one for each game. You bet on a numbered horse, but you don't know the name of the horse or any other race information. The payouts are based on paramutual wagering, not casino gaming, which is important because racetrack operators have felt that this would be an easier path to generating additional revenue to support the live product than would trying to get legalized casino gaming on the premises. Casino gaming would also likely mean a split of revenue with the casino operator, usually slanted in the casino's favor. Historical wagering started in Arkansas in 2000. At its height, eight states allowed historical racing machines, but slowly over the years, a few state legislatures have reversed course on defining historical racing as paramutual. Last week, the Supreme Court of the state of Kentucky became the latest state, and for thoroughbred racing the most important, to strike down the classification of historical racing as paramutual. The Pollock Report pointed out recently that four tracks in the state have historical racing, Kentucky Downs, whose meet just ended, Keeneland, Ellis Park, and the Red Mile Harness Track. Churchill Downs does not have historical machines at the track, but they own a gaming parlor in Louisville called Derby City Gaming, which does have the machines on site. So the question is what this ruling, and others like it previously in Idaho and Nebraska in the recent past, mean for this method of drawing additional revenue to support live thoroughbred racing. To help us with some perspective on this, we welcome into Win the Gate Evan Davis, Managing Director of the Sports Wagering Group at 76 Capital Sports Advisory. Let's talk about Kentucky specifically first. In February of 2014, the state Supreme Court ruled that historical horse racing could be legally authorized as paramutual. Now the courts reversed that decision. What has led to the reversal? Yeah, so the the 2014 decision out of the Kentucky Supreme Court said could is the operative word there, right? It said that historical horse racing could be a legal form of paramutual wagering, but that there weren't enough facts presented to it for it to ultimately make that determination or for a lower court to make that determination. And so in 2014, essentially what the Kentucky Supreme Court did is remanded this back to the lower court so that discovery could be conducted on whether or not historical horse racing was, in fact, a legal form of paramutual wagering. And four years of discovery later, it got to a decision in the lower court. So correct me if I'm wrong, setting up historical horse racing games at tracks like Kentucky Downs and Keeneland not only doesn't involve the need for licensed casino games, but it doesn't require a full-blown casino gaming partner as opposed to setting up a full-blown casino at a racetrack. Am I right? It certainly does not require a full-blown casino partner, although obviously there are gaming companies who are manufacturing these machines 
from which the tracks are then either leasing or purchasing them. Setting up slot machines, though, can be, I mean, it's a similar concept. Obviously, there are horse tracks across the country that have chosen to, either chosen to or required to be partners with casino gaming companies. Um, But that's not necessarily the case in terms of having to do it, right? Leasing a slot machine and putting it within your facility wouldn't be that dissimilar to what's being done now with the with the HHR machines. So even if casino gaming then is allowed in Kentucky, which we'll get to in a minute, what realistically is the difference in money that the track gets from historical racing machines versus a casino on site run by a third party? Well, the way that anyone profits, an operator profits from paramutual betting is going to be slightly different than the way that an operator would profit from a slot machine, more traditional class three slot machines, because with paramutual betting, typically, you know, as is the case with just quote unquote regular horse wagering, the operator can sort of build in a profit margin. Something similar is done with class three slot machines, but it's done in in, in terms of a hold percentage that's then built into the way that the random number generator works. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the house is going to shoot for a specific profit margin on the actual gaming activity. And then the costs that are associated with operating that activity, whether it's labor or other forms of overhead, including, as I mentioned before, you know, leasing or purchasing the slots. But leasing or purchasing the slots is going to be less than having to pay whatever it costs for a third party to be on site. And you would think that most of the profit from the casino is going to stay with the casino and not go back to the racetrack, right? Yeah, I mean, it depends on the nature of the agreement that a racetrack has with any gaming operator. A racetrack in one location might simply want somebody to help out with putting slot machines on the floor, making sure that they are running according to the necessary operating standards, handling the cash transactions that go with them and things like that. Um, On the other end of that spectrum, a horse racing operator might want a casino operator to come in and, and really make the place feel much more like a mini casino. And whether that's various forms of entertainment food and beverage offerings and things like that. I think a lot of it goes into what the feel is that you're looking for, who the folks are that, you know, the the horse racing operator thinks are likely to come and visit the venue and what makes the most sense in terms of a cash outlay, how you're apportioning those costs and the resulting profits. There's not really a one size fits all approach to that. And I think the, you know, there are a variety of factors that go into it, the geography being a significant one. Evan Davis, Managing Director of the Sports Wagering Group at 76 Capital Sports Advisory, joining us here on In the Gate. How likely is it then in Kentucky and maybe Virginia, where historical racing fuels purses at Colonial Downs, to legalize gaming in general? Yeah, I mean, so Virginia has now passed what it needs to pass to legalize other forms of gaming, whether it's, you know, casinos or, or sports betting. So I think um, Virginia is really already pretty far down that road. Kentucky has approached this issue before it got some traction. Um, I know it had the gov- sports betting, at least, had the governor's backing, and it hasn't quite got, gotten uh, you know, across the finish line, to, to use somewhat of a metaphor there. 
But look, I think that one of the realities of what COVID has done for state governments in general is it's created budget shortfalls, among other things. And they're going to need to look to alternative sources of tax revenues to try to make up for those shortfalls. And so whether it's casino gaming or sports wagering or adding mobile sports wagering in states where that doesn't it currently exist. I think those are things that are all on the table for states where where they don't have them now because look, they won't be a panacea in terms of tax revenues. They're not going to bring in, you know, billions of dollars to state coffers, but they can bring in significant tax revenues and especially if you're talking about a state like uh, like a Kentucky, which is bordered by states, you know, in Indiana, sports wagering is legal, mobile sports wagering is legal. In Tennessee, it's legal and it'll be live soon, probably, you know, before the end of this year. Ohio is one of the states that's most likely to pass something uh, legalizing this. I think when you're surrounded by these forms of gaming activities and you see your state's residents crossing state lines to bet in other states and letting those tax revenues go to other states, it's going to form a real incentive for a state like Kentucky to legalize this. So, you know, I'll be really interested to see and how that plays out in Kentucky and in other states that are similarly situated. And oh, by the way, it's been reported that Kentuckians wagered over $2 billion on historical racing in the state's fiscal year that concluded at the end of June. So how much do alternative forms of revenue like historical racing impact the viability of the thoroughbred industry? I mean, clearly in Kentucky, it was a it was a huge factor in in the viability of that industry, right? And and every state handles this a little bit differently. You get states that just give outright budget subsidies to the industry. Other states that have legalized commercial casinos that obviously the states tax those casinos and allocate a portion of those tax revenues to the thoroughbred industry. So states can go about this differently. But, you know, in a state like Kentucky, where you see what, as you point out, right, what the revenues were that that came from this activity. And as importantly, you know, I don't want to neglect mentioning the the jobs that this created as well. It's going to be really important. I think there's going to be a lot of political pressure there, um, as there should be, to to maintain the viability of the of the industry and the jobs that go along with it. And so if that is modifying the law, uh, which is what the, the Kentucky Supreme Court essentially pretty much said outright, they said this is a job for the legislature. If you want to allow, whether it's these types of historical horse racing machines, if you want to allow full-blown class three slot machines at these racetracks, you know, you can absolutely do that. You just need to do it. And so whether it's modifying the law to, to do that, whether it's going beyond that and allowing for, whether it's commercial casinos or sports betting or the tracks to have, you know, sports bet, be able to have sports betting on site. I think those things are all on the table. And when you look at what's currently going on with the pandemic, the effect it's had on state tax revenues and just the effect that it's had on commerce and employment within, you know, every state, Kentucky's no exception. I think it's, I would be surprised, I will say, 
if this doesn't facilitate additional movement on the part of legislators in Kentucky and elsewhere to help fuel uh, some additional uh, economic recovery. Evan Davis is the managing director of the Sports Wagering Group at 76 Capital Sports Advisory. Thank you so much for helping us out with this. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Our thanks once again to Evan Davis and Ken McPeak. I can't decide whether racing continuing on the way it is is tone deaf or a retreat from the real world. Social issues that we hear about at the top of every news show in many other sports have been unfurled. But racing simply plods along with post parades and gate breaks. Is status quo the respite people want? And if it is, what does that say about racing's demographics? Not something in the real world it should flaunt. Customers' priorities change, and if you don't see it coming, you'll be on the outside looking in. Blockbuster and Polaroid didn't sense those new priorities. Those companies are now in the scrap bin. It may not seem like racing's customers are driving social change, but either their makeup will change and the sport must too, or racing keeps on doing what it does like Blockbuster, and those would-be new fans bid the sport adieu. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud, Spotify, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course, in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. Those reviews really help others find us. Maybe even drop a line to those Mensa members at America's Best Racing and tell them that In The Gate belongs in their finalists for Best Podcast in the Fan Choice Awards this November. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We hope you're safe and healthy as you listen to this, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>